She's a former public school teacher turned stay-at-home mom. He's a talk show host who's made a career covering politics from afar. Now, Christine Stegall and her husband Chris have chosen a new path forward for their child in Christian education. Join them as they explore and experience this important alternative in education for the first time. Welcome to Making the Leap. When I was in public schools, if you were a math teacher, you taught math. If you are an economics teacher, you taught economics. History, you taught history. They're not doing that anymore. They're pushing this weird agenda on these kids. That's just strange. It's a total brainwashing thing, and it's just, it's got to end. Hey, welcome into this edition of Making the Leap. It's a rare double shot. It's a twofer today, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We've got two big names on the show today. You ready for this one? We have uh, Coach Joe Kennedy, and that name may or may not be familiar to you. I bet you remember him once I tell you the story. This is the high school football coach that refused to quit praying. Remember him? I do remember him. Absolutely. Uh, and he kept praying, and some of his team started to join him in prayer. Uh, I, I think it was at the end zone, maybe mm-hmm. at halftime, maybe after the game. I don't remember which. But the school district kept saying, hey, knock it off. Hey, knock it off. Then attorneys got involved, as attorneys do. And then all of a sudden, he ends up losing his job. He ends up fighting this thing all the way to the Supreme Court. And what you may forget, because it was exactly the same time that the ruling on abortion and Roe versus Wade came out, yep. uh, the ruling in Joe Kennedy's favor came out right after the ruling Roe was overturned. Yes. Remember mm-hmm. that? Oh, I do. It was like, well, that was another twofer, <laughs> like, yeah. where you don't expect, you know. Well, the whole country caught fire about abortion, right? And so everybody and then, missed that yes. Joe Kennedy had won a huge right. religious liberty case. Absolutely. So and yeah. that sticks out with me. Just I was thinking about that this weekend when we were watching um, football game with our son, who's in public school. Um, we were at his school watching, and I like <laughs> turned to you, like punched you. I'm like, look at that, look at that, look at those kids, because they were down on the field. They were probably about six of that. them. Yeah. Neil down together praying two off to the side and I don't I think there was a coach leading them actually now that I, there was an adult that stood up and I was thrilled yeah. to see it and I was thinking about him right because there I just, the field right just off I mean it was pregame everyone's there watching and I, I I just it's heartwarming to see it but I was thinking about um, Joe just in terms of what he had to go through for that and then that is luckily something that at least in our district, can still be done. So we're going to dive right into it. First, uh, our conversation, my conversation, I should say, we taped it earlier, uh, with Joe Kennedy on his brand new book out now called Average Joe. And then right after this conversation, we'll talk with Kevin Sorbo. How about that? I know. It's a big, big shot big Hollywood names, actor yeah. who had a, a new film come out last month or, or so ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he and his wife, Sam, as you know, if you're a regular listener to this show, they're big homeschool proponents. So we're going to get into that with Kevin. But first, our conversation with Joe Kennedy. This is one of the cooler stories that um, you're going to hear, as as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to just the average citizen pushing back and winning all the way to the highest court in the supreme land. There's perhaps uh, the, the highest court in the land, I should say. There's perhaps no greater story than that of Coach Joe Kennedy. You may remember his name. If you don't, we're going to Get you refamiliarized right now. His brand new book out now called Average Joe. And uh, Joe Kennedy, coach, we're glad to have you on the show, first of all. Thanks so much for being here today. Hi. It's awesome to be here. I appreciate you guys. I uh, would love for you to just kind of give us the full 30,000-foot view, sort of retell your story for anybody that might not remember it. I, we covered it extensively, but uh, if for some reason people don't remember your story, would you mind sharing it all over again? Yeah, no problem. 
Yeah, just an uh, average guy, really. I got out of the Marine Corps, and uh, God called me to start coaching, which was really cool. I started coaching uh, Bremer- at Bremerton High School, and I prayed after every game, win or lose, um, right there on the 50-yard line. And it went up for eight years in the school district, never had a problem with it. And then after eight years, somebody saw what we were doing, gave a compliment. Their lawyers got involved, started an investigation. And the next thing you know, I'm I'm fighting for my life and for my my job. They ended up firing me and we had to sue them and take it all the way to the Supreme Court. We were, oh man, we lost seven times in a row getting up there to the Supreme Court. So it's been a long, long battle. When you got out of the Marines, that was your first full-time job out out of the Marines. And I, I've learned, by the way, since you're always a Marine, you never retire. You're always a Marine. So uh, when you when you left full-time service in the Marines, uh, was that your first job outside of the Marine Corps, coaching? No, actually, yeah, no. I, that was my calling. I, I never knew what a calling was until then. I found my passion and my joy in coaching. I actually worked for the government. I worked uh, for. Uh, government job, uh, made good money, but man, I hated that compared to coaching. Coaching was the thing I look forward to every single day. How did you wind up in Bremerton, out in Washington? Well, that's where I was originally born and raised uh, in Bremerton. I couldn't wait to get out of there. So I spent uh, 17 years trying to get out of Bremerton and then joined the, the Marine Corps and ended up spending 20 years trying to get back. And that's where my childhood sweetheart was and all my family. We decided that when we retire, we're going to go back home and give to our community and and be part of Bremerton. So did you ever think, I mean, I know you said you wanted to get out when you were a younger man. You come back and you coach. Was it the Bremerton that you remember wanting to leave? Is this very fight the reason you wanted to leave or for different reasons? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, growing up there, I I felt like I was trapped. Yeah, I was that bad kid. I had a bad rap for being in the town of just, uh, you know, it's a small community, blue collar, and there wasn't really anything there for me. I really wanted to go experience what the world was. And then after seeing how actually bad the rest of the world is and how great uh, America is, we wanted to give back to our community. And Bremerton seemed like the absolute perfect place and a chance for me to, I don't know, um, you know, give back to the community that I hurt so much when I was a kid and be able to help these young men so they didn't go down the same path that I did when I was young. So you go back and you start coaching. How long are you coaching before? Uh, and and is, is prayer a regular part of your coaching from day one? Oh, yes, absolutely. When I went After I went to the interview for Bremerton for the actual job, uh, in the middle of the night that weekend, I saw a face in the Giants. And just like in the movie, I know I'm not very original, but just like the movie, I did what the guy did in the movie, uh, Alex Kendrick. And that was giving uh, God the glory after every game, win or lose. And I did that twice a week on Friday nights with the varsity and Monday nights with the junior varsity every week for eight years. So that that was my thing. And did any of the players ever object? When when was the first time you ever heard any scuttlebutt of an objection to this? I would, <laughs> yeah, there was never an objection. I, I did have a couple students throughout the years come up and, and said, Coach, hey, I, I, I'm not comfortable with praying. And I said, cool, what, what do you want to do? And they said, well, I'll take care of the equipment. I'll keep an eye on anybody else that doesn't join. And they showed great leadership. Those are the guys that I promoted to be my team captains. So nobody ever had a problem with my prayer. There were some that didn't want to join, and that was perfectly fine. This is America. You could do what you want to do. 
Amen. So just so we're clear, this is an amazing part of the story I didn't know. You promoted the kids who said to you specifically, I don't want to pray. You actually promoted them. Oh, yeah. They show great leadership. Being able to stand up for what you believe in is what leadership's all about. And I thought that took a lot of courage and a lot of guts to do that. And that's the great thing about Bremerton is we have these awesome kids and they're not afraid to speak up their mind and stand for what they believe in. So if everybody's following along as they're listening, uh, Coach Kennedy didn't punish people for not thinking the way he did. He promoted them. That is not the way you were treated, though, Coach. Yeah, no, not at all. When, when did you finally uh, get the, the hammer dropped, so to speak? Stop praying. Yeah, it was in uh it was partway through our uh, eighth year in uh, me coaching, eighth uh, year in the middle of the season. I got a warning from the school, said, hey, people are asking about the prayer. And it started out just a big misunderstanding. And then they started taking action against me and gave me letters of direction. The first one, they said, hey, you need to stop praying with the, with the players. And I said, okay, well, that's unfortunate, but hey, your school, your rules. And I complied with that. And I never prayed with my football team again, but I continued to do it. It wasn't until the other teams started coming out uh, that the, our opposition, um, uh, the opposing team, came out and joined. So the school freaked out and said, we'll just remove it all. So the school district lawyers were the ones that said it's so much easier just to remove your freedom and the First Amendment than actually standing up for it. And that's when the fight really started. So to be clear, you stopped requiring the team or asking the team to pray with you. You would go out and take a knee to pray prior to and after games? Uh, prior to and after, uh, all the coaches prayed before. We all kind of took turns with that one. And I never even asked the kids to come out. They asked if they could come out to join me. I, you know, I didn't want really even to have them to start with because I'm not great at doing prayers. And I didn't know what to say. I'm just thankful for being part of the team and, and seeing these guys battle. So, yeah, it was uh, after the game is when everything happened. And it was after the my team would meet with the other team and we were walking off the field. I would just take a knee for 30 seconds, thank God, and then I would peace out with the rest of my team. So it was the public nature of it, do you think, that got them so freaked out? Do you think if you'd stayed in the locker room and done this, would it have been different or no? I think, yeah, I really think it would have been different. Uh, they they actually tried to give me um, some places that I could go pray after a game, which were uh, logistically insane. They wanted me to leave my team for up to 15 minutes to go do this. And my number one job is to be, you know, watching out for these guys and um, overseeing what they're doing and leaving them didn't sound like an option. But also to send a real bad message, you know, hey, we could go lock you in uh, in the uh, janitor's uh room if you want to go pray or you could walk all the way around to go to the press box and do that after we cleared out and i'm sitting there going well i'm sorry the first amendment and the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion isn't something that you have to hide you, you sh it sh we shouldn't treat it like it's something bad so that was part of the reason i stood up for what i believed in is because I can't imagine people having to hide, especially in this day and age. You know, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, that includes everybody, and that's what diversity is. It's all religions, being tolerant towards everybody. And I wanted that same um, ability to do that as everybody else. You decide at some point, I guess, to continue to stand up against this, and at some point that's when the district says you're no longer welcome to work here and coach here. And then it becomes a legal battle. 
That lasts how long, Coach? I mean, how long do you and, – and I, I guess was all along your intent to fight this for as long as you could fight it? Or was there a part of you that just said, I'm out, and then somebody said, no, no, you've got a case here we should fight? No, I, yeah, I, I, this was something I planned on fighting from the very beginning. I tried to work with the school because these guys are my friends. The superintendent's still a dear friend of mine. Even Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we worked together for almost a decade. I'm, we went to holiday parties together. It's a small community. We all grew up together. So this was such a big deal that I... So may I, Joe, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I just, I've got to press on that. So th- this, I assume these edicts were coming from your superintendent, though, were they not? And was it just pressure pressure brought to bear from outsiders on him, not really something he wanted to do? Yeah, I, I knew he didn't want to go through with this, but the the school district lawyers that represent all the state of Washington, they work with these groups that are like Freedom From Religious Foundation and all these, I consider them hate groups, that they just want to take away people's rights. So this it's really the evil uh, lawyers that had everything to do with it. So, and I understand. Yeah, yeah the, um, the superintendent, can you imagine him going against their lawyers? Well, no. How about your school board? See, this is something I think it's really important for everybody to understand how the bureaucracy of public education works. Because you, you'd think, well, if the superintendent stands by the coach, that's it. Or, okay, well, if the superintendent's having trouble, then maybe the school board steps in, and then that's it. I don't know where the school board stood with you on this, but the point you're sharing is that isn't it. I mean, if you think that your superintendent, your school board is where it stops, clearly that's not the case. Yeah, that, and that was a big eye-opener for me because I, I assumed that the superintendent and the school board were the ones that ran our entire district, and that isn't even close to being the case. I had to constantly update the superintendent and the school board of what was happening in the legal aspects of it because the school district lawyers, they weren't even communicating with, with the school district, and I, they were surprised that this was still going on, and every time it popped up, they had no idea it was even happening. So I was the one that kept them in the loop of everything. So I'm sorry to get down into the minutia of this, but it's fascinating. The school district lawyers told your friend, the superintendent, and those of your allies on the school board, stand aside, all of you. He can't pray. Yes, that is correct. And, and they ultimately deferred to the lawyers because they felt like, what, if they didn't, what? Yeah, that was an interesting thing. They they constantly said that this could be a um, uh, what did they call it? The um, establishment clause violation. So this could potentially cause uh, you know a lawsuit later on down the road. And I sat there and I was like, Aaron, the superintendent. I was telling him, I was like, you're talking about a hypothetical thing that hasn't even happened. I'm guaranteeing you, if you take away my rights as American, I will fight this, and you will be sued. It's not a probability it's a definite and so when you decided to go to court for the first time was this all at your own personal expense or did you have people that were willing to help because i know this can break people financially if they decide to go it alone yeah there's no way i could have done this by myself uh when when everything was said and done it uh the lawyer bill was about 6.9 million dollars but i had these great people that did it um pro bono and we had groups like first liberty institute what they do is nothing but religious um liberties and they are they work purely off of donations and the goodness of americans 
So if I didn't have them, I, I would have been trucked. I would have been just absolutely ran over and you never, ever would have heard about this story. You finally make your way, this case all the way. I know you said it went through several machinations in lower, lower courts until finally June 27th, 2022, when the Supreme Court hands you a victory. Um, talk about that day and were you optimistic that was coming? Well, I was very optimistic. From the very beginning, I thought it was a slam dunk. Even at the district level, the the judges were saying, well, I prayed with my team when I played sports and my dad did it with his team when he coached sports. So I thought we were going to win. But they kept on saying because of the political climate. And I just couldn't wrap my brain around that, how that had anything to do with the Constitution or the law and and the facts of the case but that's the way it went through and when it, it went to the supreme court we were waiting and waiting and waiting and i was confident if anybody actually just looked at the facts of the case and bounced this off of what the first amendment says if it, it's a very cut clear easy decision for for me and most americans to say yeah what is the big deal about this so yeah we were sitting there and when we finally got it the um the ruling, it came a week after Dobbs, which, you know, was the biggest one of the year that caused the most, uh, I'd say, newsworthy stuff. So mine actually was kept kind of quiet. And I think that was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> but, yeah, we, we, we celebrated, let me tell you. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable that uh, a man's freedom of speech, a Marine's freedom of speech, takes a back seat to a case that allows you to kill babies, but I'll, that's an editorial comment for another day. Uh, Coach, the, my, what, I, what I would love to know now is uh, you have the opportunity then to go back to Bremerton if you want, I assume, and, and have your job back or something similar, Was if, if I remember correctly, and I think at that point you said no thank you. Well, I went back uh, for the spring, the day that they hired me back uh, or reinstated me, I should say, the day they, they reinstated me, I was there at the Bremerton School District office getting my paperwork. And that's when our spring ball was just starting for football for the 2023 season. And I, I they held me up with every kind of red tape you could possibly imagine. So I didn't even get a step on the field all during spring ball. We tried again in the fall, got everything done finally. And I went through fall practice and fall camp with all my players. I went to the first game and then uh, two, two practices following that before um, my wife and I and really God just decided that, hey, we needed to um, cut our ties and, and go live our lives now that we, we finish this race. And where do you call home today? We are down in Pensacola, Florida. My wife's uh, father, he's down here and he had he was going through a lot of health problems and it was in a dark time. Uh, his son got murdered. I mean, just oh the, the, the worst that you could possibly imagine. And he has nobody else now except for um, his daughter, which is my wife. So we decided, hey, we're going to go to Pensacola. And so that's where we're at. We're calling this home until uh, he's no longer with us. Do you have any uh thoughts about going back to coaching again do you miss it or no i i miss a lot of things about it it was such an amazing job and there's no other job that i could think especially after being in the in the marines and, and training young men and women to become leaders i thought that was the highest honor but let me tell you these young men that are just learning how to become men that was really where it was at. And it took everything, it, all my time, all, all my uh, physically and emotionally, that's where my, my heart was, was with these players. And I don't know where my future is gonna be. I've gotten job offers here in Florida at some of the colleges. 
And I just, uh, the school kind of ruined it and took all the joy out of it. So mm. we'll see where God leads me. And, and, you know, who knows? I might be back out on the, the field again, or I might not. It all depends on where I'm called to. I think there are a lot of people that feel a great deal of despair. You know, I spend um, a lot of time, my wife and I do, talking about um, (laughs) pulling kids from public education, uh, exploring other alternatives, be that homeschool or Christian school. Do you have a sense of of that today? Do you, I I didn't ask if you have a family yourself, do you have a a feeling or an opinion about K through 12 public education today and, and the state of things given what you've just gone through? Yeah, well, this whole experience definitely changed it. We were so pro um, public schools. My wife worked for the school district. We had two kids at Bremerton High School at the time and one in the middle school. So we were very much in, in, um, you know, in support of the Bremerton School District and public education. It wasn't until you start digging down and you find out how the school unions and uh, the people who actually run the, the school districts, the lawyers and Really, it's not the school or the town or anybody else. It's all these other groups that are the ones running it. Now, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I am very much against public education, the way that things are going. They've removed parents' uh, rights from them, and they're able to teach these kids all these things that have nothing to do with education. And that's a sad place to be for our youth. You're on the good side. You're on the winning side for once. One of the few guys that feels like they're on the winning side of the Constitution and I mean, you, you know, you enlist in the Marines, uh, you, you're prepared to lay your life on the line for your country, and then you find yourself in a place where you can't pray at a football game. I, I, I can't imagine how uh, frustrating and heartsick that must make you. However, um, the upshot of this story is uh, the system worked as it should, and you had a Supreme Court that stepped in and defended your religious liberty. I, I, I hope that's of some uh, what po- positive f- feeling for you? I, the whole thing is a terribly negative thing, but I thank God for the Supreme Court. I guess is what I would say. Oh, absolutely! It, it's good to know that there are still checks and balances here in our society. And one of the great things about it, even though this was tough, and I hope nobody ever has to choose between their job and and their faith, it this really set a foundation for everybody. It's we have more re- religious liberty now than we have in the past fifty years because of this, and that's largely due. Uh, Americans are just so tired of taking a back seat and stepping down when they know something is wrong and they don't say anything about it and they just let themselves get ran over. People are, are tired of that and they want to stand up and they all rallied behind me. And I tell you, it, it's because of America and the prayers that people did when we turned to God, amazing things happened. And to Christians who find themselves in similar situations, Joe, I'll close with that question. Maybe some advice from somebody who's been through it at the highest levels. What do you say to people who feel up against the wall a little bit because of their faith? Yeah, stand and fight. You know, I mean, you can read it throughout the Bible. It says it's, you know, we're not going to, it's not going to be an easy road and we're going to, you know, have to fight sometimes. But that's what God's called us to do. He gave us a warrior spirit within us and we need to stand up for what is right. No longer can we sit back and let things happen. And the way that America's going, we're, we're the last line of defense and we are the ones that God gave us dominion over this earth. So let's take good care of it. And if they need any help, reach out to these groups like First Liberty or ADF or even call me, man. I will stand up by anybody and help them stand for what they believe is right and and their religious um, freedoms. 
I tell you what, man, you, um, you, <laughs> you planted your flag and you took it all the way to the Supreme Court and you won. And on behalf of all of us who value religious liberty, uh, God bless you, Coach. Thank you so much for what you did. I, I wish you nothing but blessings in your future, my friend. Thank you so much. And hey, keep fighting a good fight, man. And we need you out there. You know, I hate to, I don't want to be cliched, but I just, I was listening, thinking about this and thinking just that regular Joe, like what a regular, yeah. you know, your average guy, your average coach, and what a heartbreaking yet inspirational story to come from. Like leaving a job you love, nobody wants, nobody wants to do that. And you fight and fight and fight and fight. And then you still end up stopping. You know, the most Im- amazing part of that story to me was the fact that his friend is still to this day the superintendent and the school board he said all of them stood with him and stood agreed with him, him but it was district attorneys who got involved yes. and caused yes him to lose his job i can't that is what i don't understand i remember being literally just stuck in a room with a bunch of new teachers my very very first week of school (laughs) and the district attorneys were there to basically tell us um here's what to do here's what not to do we're here to keep you from getting sued that's why we that's why we exist keep you from getting sued i was thinking about that because what like don't they have other things (laughs) don't they have other things to go do but that's that's amazing that you have a superintendent that you have people standing by him that are in those higher positions and they're and, still overridden and they're they have that's exactly it they have no power well it's kind of like when i haven't i've had issues in the past where you know i like start firing off at the superintendent but really no it's the it's the above it's the people on the next steps so the last time i interacted with a student with a school board um, members pretty recently they were like mm, well, just you know attorneys are looking at this and that and i was like well what good are you what is yeah, your no, point nobody elected <laughs> like, attorneys to the school right yeah. no and they're making massive amounts of money to do these kinds of things and i think for, to what to what gain? What's yeah, the purpose? How about you public school teachers uh, complain a little louder to the attorneys that the district's paying it's on retainer to just sit around and soak up money? Maybe that's where some of your raise money can come from. <laughs> attorneys, anyway. Um, but I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. it ended up with that outcome for him. I, that's, that's good. Up next, actor, Hollywood big shot, Kevin Sorbo. You know him as Hercules. Uh, that was his most famous role. He's been in lots of different <laughs> films since then. A lot of them he makes himself. Uh, himself, he and his wife Sam are, um, and we've had Sam um, with yeah. us before. We had her on last year, I believe. Yeah, they're pretty unashamed I, and not bashful about no. where they stand. With I was going to say hardcore. I don't know if that's the best word to use either, but yes, no apologies whatsoever. I, I was speaking with him um, in full about his movie, his newest movie. Mm-hmm. Sam's in it, by the way, called Miracle in East Texas. Uh, I still have not seen it, and I want to. It looks really great. Yeah. It's got John Ratzenberger, Cliff oh, from Cheers okay. in it. Yeah, 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 okay. Really interesting-looking movie. But that wasn't the reason why I wanted you to hear some of the conversation with him today. Uh, I talk with him about his decision, his wife's decision to homeschool, why they do it, and is that something that he thinks is maybe catching on in Hollywood? Check out some of this conversation. Hey, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the show the one and only Kevin Sorbo. Mr. Sorbo, it's a pleasure. Welcome back. Good to be back. Good to see you guys. Congratulations on the brand new film, Miracle in East Texas. Yep. Uh, this, this look, I just watched the trailer before we started talking. This looks fantastic. I can't wait to see it. It's a very fun movie. It's a true story uh, set in 1930, right in the middle of the uh, America's Depression at that time. And um, these two con guys, played by myself and John Ratzenberger, would go through Oklahoma and Texas and they would uh, con widows out of their money on on fake oil wells. They would sell 500% of the shares five times more than anything's worth. And then they would declare a dry hell, move on to the next town. They get to Kilgore, Texas, 
they strike oil, but totally by accident. Of course, they get arrested. And um, it's just, uh, it's a wonderful true story uh, written by John, um, I mean, sorry, by Dan Gordon. Dan Gordon's an Oscar-nominated writer. He wrote The Hurricane for Denzel Washington, White Earp, Kevin Costner. Uh, just a great writer. And this movie's won 10 film festivals, everything from best family movie to best comedy, uh, best faith movie, best judges' favorite, audience favorite. They can't really pigeonhole it, but one thing they can all say is that it's a PG-rated movie, and kids uh, and families of all ages can see it. And it's just a wonderful, non-woke, non—you know—divisive, non-hating. It's just a fun movie with a lot of good humor involved in it. Well, but it's a movie that's got redemption in there, and laughter, things, and hope—things that are missing in America right now, for sure. It's a great plot, but I see you kind of evangelizing a little bit. Was that part of the? Is that part of the scam? Well, you know, part of part of their their acts. I mean, my guy was the main flimflam guy. John Ratzenberger's character, Doc Everett, was a real oil man. And he just had a string of bad luck where he ran out of money at certain oil sites and somebody else came in and took over and drilled another thousand feet down and struck oil. Um, his name was D.H. Everett. And they used to say D.H. stood for dry hole. <laughs> so um, it was uh, it, it, my character would woo widows with Bible verses and uh, Shakespeare soliloquies. So uh, he was a bit of a charmer with the ladies. And uh, like I said, it's a true story. So he goes to a, a church to try to raise more money. And to woo over this black Baptist crowd there in uh, East Texas, and uh, it's just, it's just, it was fun. It's a wonderful script. It was just a fun script. Dan Gordon is a brilliant writer. Oh, it looks, it's, it to see you do the big flamboyant preacher bit in the pulpit was very funny. That must have been fun to play. It was fun. Yeah, it was a good scene. We had a great location. I mean, I showed this movie to about 400 oil guys in Oklahoma City, another 400 in Texas. And I remember one of the guys from Texas after screening, we did a Q&A and he said, I know exactly where you shot that. And I said, no, you don't. He goes, what? And I said, we shot it in Canada. He goes, what? <laughs> so, um, I said, it's called show business, not show show. You get a bigger tax credit. You go to Canada, you get 30% tax credit. You get 25% more on your dollar because the U.S. dollar is stronger. And we shot the same ranch, the 3,000 acre ranch outside of Calgary, that Clint Eastwood used in Unforgiven. Wow. If it's good enough for Clint Eastwood, it's good enough for Kevin Sorbo. That's, there you go. Uh, your wife, Sam Sorbo, is also in this film. I don't yep. know how often you work with her uh, or have in the past, but that's always fun, I'm sure. Assuming you guys like working together. Not every spouse likes working with their spouse. I get it. but we, uh, No, we have our good fights. But uh, <laughs> we, um, you know, we met on the set of Hercules. I lived in the Hercules Seven Years film in that series, which uh, by season three, the sin of pride, but I got to say it became the most watched TV show in the world in 176 countries. And uh, we met at the end of season four on that series. And we've done, my gosh, I think we've been in about six or seven movies together. Wow. We had one most recently that was in theaters uh, January and February this year called Left Behind, Rise of the Antichrist, based on the Left Behind books from Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. You, in fact, in talking with her not too terribly long ago about her own podcast and this film coming up, she mentioned that you as a family all had traveled to Israel as, and taken a, a group of folks with you. Uh, I don't know if that actually happened or not. Did it? And that was obviously prior to this massive conflict we see now. What what did you take from that trip? I've never taken it myself. Well, we've, been there, we've been there five times. I've been there five okay. times now. Sam's been there four times. Um, we take a group of 80 people every year. Obviously, COVID shut it down for a couple of years. Um, but uh, the, I take the family with us. Sam and I host it. Uh, we were just there in May of this year. Um, that pretty scary because they, you know, I read they've been planning this attack for up to two years now. And uh, we, um, 
I've shot two documentaries there. I have one coming out uh, later next year that I shot in Israel three weeks on my own. Sam came along just with me on that trip and the production company out of Houston, Texas. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing it's an amazing trip. It's incredibly sad what's going on there right now, obviously. Uh, you know, they're surrounded by all these countries that want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And uh, every time I've been there, I've never felt threatened. I've never felt in danger, but I would feel that way now, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's too bad because we already had about 30 people signed up for next year's trip next May. But that doesn't look like it's going to happen now, which, which is unfortunate. Sam has been a passionate advocate for this, but um, both of you, I know as parents, have valued homeschooling as the option for your kids. Can, can you speak to that? I know you've said that's kind of Sam's lane, but but why you as a dad uh, value that your children have been homeschooled? Well, I see how, look how our, our homeschooling, I mean, our public schools are horrible. I mean, we're one of the worst in the world. I think we rank around 30th in the world in public education. Uh, you know, anything run by the government doesn't work very well anyway. I mean, I'm reminded of Ronald Reagan's favorite quote when he said, these are the words to fear. Hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And uh, we know that those are, those are words to live by. And um, everything the government does run, they just destroy it. And public schools are crazy. They just passed a law, was in Oregon or something, that uh, they can graduate kids now, 18-year-olds, even if they can't read or write. Man. I'm going, What? I mean, it's incredible. So we we drove, I had friends in Minnesota where I grew up that were homeschooling back in the 80s, and that was like a rare thing. But um, we jumped on board right away. I think the, my oldest now is 22. After second grade in public schools, him, we just moved all three kids in the, in the homeschooling. And I think one of the blessings of COVID is that uh, 2 million more families are now homeschooling. They, yes. they kind of woke up and looked at public schools and said, you know, look what they're doing. Look what the school boards are doing. Look at the books they're putting kids in. Look at the books they're getting read of. And look at the subject matter they're dealing with. I never deal with that. When I, when I was in public schools, if you were a math teacher, you taught math. If you're an economics teacher, you talk economics. History, you taught history. They're not doing that anymore. They're pushing this weird agenda on these kids that's just strange. It's a total brainwashing thing, and it's just it's got to end. When Bill Maher comes out last week and says, we need to tell parents not to send their kids to universities, <laughs> You know that people are waking up on the left to realize how horrible it is out there for kids. So it is uh, if people go to SorboStudios.com, not only for Miracle East Texas, you'll get more of my stuff on that website and also a lot of Sam stuff on that website as well. Yeah, she's she's been a great friend of the show. Um, and in terms of your community, that being kind of uh, the entertainment community, the Hollywood community, is, is education a point of discussion? I mean, a lot of people who are of means, I know, hire what private tutors for their kids and often travel with their kids um it's actually as a concept homeschooling is actually not that foreign to people in entertainment with means is it we always did homeschooling before before you know public schools started happening i mean abe lincoln was a public school a private homeschooled kid you know uh when the government took over that's when it got worse i think the 60s is when it really started to go downhill uh, they took the Bible out of the classroom, and they, then they, um, from the Welfare Reform Act to the Vietnam War to the hippie thing to the rock and roll, and I like rock and roll, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I think all these things combined, I think sort of led to, uh, in Hollywood, I mean, Andrew Breitbart said it best, you know, rest in peace, great friend of ours, uh, said politics runs downstream from culture, who runs the culture? Well, Hollywood does, and so does mainstream media. So this constant brainwashing the kids over and over and over again. Um, you know, we look at murder, which I call, which I 
replaced from the word abortion as a common thing to do. These same people on the left want to save a sea turtle leg or save a tree. They'll chain themselves to trees, but to kill a baby is no big deal to them. And so um, it's it's really amazing how callous and how uh, really just sort of stigmatized the world has become and just being so apathetic to their human life. Is uh, the entertainment industry becoming warmer to you and people like you who share your values, or is it still a tremendous hostility? I would think they'd be waking up culturally to seeing the success of films like yours, or no? You you would hope so. I mean, in the last 10, 12 years, there have been a lot of great family movies out there that uh, have done quite well. Hollywood has this agenda. It's weird. I did a movie called Let There Be Light that I directed that Sam wrote along with Dan Gordon, who wrote Miracle in Texas. And that movie opened number two per screen average against Thor Ragnarok. So a $300 million movie up against a $3 million movie. I get a call from Netflix saying, we want to talk to you. The Monday after opening weekend, we want to open an inspirational division with you. So I had like four meetings with them over three months. And ultimately, nothing happened. And my last meeting with them, I said, it's amazing to me that this this birth of ideology that you have this hatred and anger towards anybody who's conservative or or anybody who's a christian um you guys will just do anything to attack that and you don't want to you guys are the ones who called me i didn't call them and ultimately they never did this inspirational division of netflix which is weird to me and i could tell in that office there was half those people agreed with what i was saying but they're too afraid to speak up the left is so powerful with its message so filled with its anger and hate in the media that for decades have been beating into kids through public schools and universities people are afraid to speak the truth anymore Wake up. I mean, I got blacklisted from Hollywood. I'm a cancel culture victim from a dozen years ago before cancel culture became a term. I think I'm the grandfather of it now because it started with me in terms of Hollywood saying we can't work with it anymore because God forbid we have truth in, in, in our movies, in our industry. Uh, truth is like kryptonite to the people on the left. I mean, they'd rather live in their lies than live in their hate and their anger. So uh, I'm going to fight back with doing movies that Hollywood used to do. And that's what I'm going to keep on doing because I enjoy doing movies that have hope in them, that have freedom in them, that have character development, that aren't just filled with 75% visual effects. Because, look, I like a Spider-Man movie too, but you leave the theater going, yeah, I didn't really care about anybody in the movie, but it was kind of a cool roller coaster, right? I mean, it's all visual effects. I like doing movies that Hollywood used to do. Movies that Clint Eastwood is still doing. Yes. You know, movies that have real stories and real character development behind them. Do you think, as I watch, you know, like Turner Classic movies, you see a Mr. Smith goes to Washington or something sure. like that. I, I don't know. Maybe you can't or wouldn't feel comfortable speaking for a Jimmy Stewart today. But do you think that was an era of Hollywood that was more in line with traditional values or they weren't thinking about sure. it? They were. Hollywood is pretty conservative. You look at the Warner Brothers that formed Warner Studios. They were Jewish and they were full-on conservatives. Hollywood was mostly conservative back in the day, just like the black population was. I mean, they were the popular. They were the they were the followers of Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln was the first Republican uh, Party president that got, got elected. So um, things, like I said, once again, things changed in the '60s. Martin Luther King was conservative. But when they passed the Welfare Reform Act back in 1964 in LBJ, they told uh, women in the, in the black culture, look, if you have babies and there's no man in the house, we'll help take care of you. Well, now it's become something they just do. They'll, they'll, have, they'll have six babies from six different guys by the time they're 30 years old just to collect an extra paycheck. I mean, it's, it's a weird way to make a living. It's kind of sad in that way. But the black population prior to that Welfare Reform Act had a much lower divorce rate than the white population did. And now that's just totally switched around. Yeah, Kevin Sorbo, if people want anything 
to do with any of your projects, past uh, or otherwise, they can go to SorboStudios.com and most everything of yours is there, right? Everything's up there. Sign up. We keep you up to date. I got four of the movies in post-production. I'm about to start a Christmas movie here pretty soon in Texas. And um, I've got two documentaries coming out. I've been doing a lot of documentaries over the last seven years. And these are wonderful, uh, wonderful true story documentaries. Man, a rolling rock gathers no moss. You don't stop, man. That's impressive. Uh, It's been busy. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin Sorbo, my best to your wife, Sam. Thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. I I listen to that. I kind of kept like, I think it's my... um, uh, social li- little tiny social liberal piece in there where your I'm like, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> your PC alarm <laughs> my, my went off on PC that? days. Yeah. Where I'm like, Oh, what did he just say? But I, gosh, I applaud. I applaud it. Like, right. It's still a, a little bit uncommon sometimes to hear somebody just sort of lay out everything like that. Who's stemming from a Hollywood connection. I know he's probably, he would not label himself that, but um, that's an unabashed he doesn't uh, opinion. apologize, right? Yeah. No. And he said that Netflix was real close. They they saw what was special about the eyes and the yes. audience for his work, and they were about to sign him, and then and then didn't. politics. You know, there is an, there is a network. I think it's called Pure Flix, and I think I have done like the you know the free subscription, try it out for a little bit, and it's sort of that antithesis of Netflix. And every time Netflix comes out with something crazy, like you know, whatever the last one was, Satan impregnating some teenage girl for uh, whatever that whatever that show was. That was legit. I'm not making wow. it up. That was a that was a Netflix thing. Um, you know, there's always a surge in people promoting pure flicks, you know, go, yeah. you know, invest in this, do this, do this. And to be fair, those movies are far more wholesome sounding like what he is trying to do in real stories. That was really it wasn't even wholesome. That wasn't the word he used, but real stories, real acting, real um, storylines, which is... People you can invest in. Yes, yes. And it's a good point, you know, well, what he was saying about action shots and all that, you know, all the special effects, but yet, what do we identify with? What do we come away from movies like Driving Miss Daisy, which was full of conflict and problems, but we come away loving those characters. And there's a lot of... A lot in Hollywood now with movies that we just don't have. And in turn, what do we what do we show our kids? What movies do we take them to? You know, we don't get to because there's a lot of right. nonsense in them. So that's um, a good one today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, Joe Kennedy, Kevin Sorbo. Hope you let us know what you think of the show. Um, leave us a five-star review, we hope, at uh, Apple Podcast or Spotify, if that's where you listen. Uh, a written review is always helpful and very appreciated. You know, And stay in touch with us, too, on social media. You can email us. Um, if you think there are any guests or subjects that we haven't covered that you'd like to see covered on Making the Leap, mm-hmm. reach out to reach us. Reach out right? to us. Notes are down below. We'd always love to hear from you. Um, and as always, we'll see you next week. Making the Leap is a podcast presentation courtesy of the Herzog Foundation. Please rate and comment on the show as well as subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we'll see you next time on Making the Leap.